Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn to the book of Jonah. While you're turning there, we saw in the story of Jonah, last time we were in the book, God showed tremendous mercy to the prophet Jonah. Jonah had rebelled against God's commission to go to Nineveh and preach against that city. Instead, he paid for a ship to go in the opposite direction to Tarshish, a trip that God interrupted by the very means Jonah used to rebel. This eventually led to Jonah's being thrown overboard in the middle of the sea. But God saved Jonah from his plight by ordaining a great fish to swallow Jonah. And in that fish, Jonah cried out to the Lord and acknowledged his saving mercies. But the question remains, how will Jonah respond? Will this mercy that God has worked in Jonah's life, will it produce a transformation in his life? Well, let's take a look at that. We're going to be looking this morning at chapters 3 and 4, which comprise Act 2 with four scenes. And like last time, we'll be using the outline by Robert Chisholm. Act 2, scene 1, Jonah is on the way to Nineveh. As we pick the story back up in chapter 3, we do so on the heels of Jonah's experience in the belly of the great fish. Jonah was inside the great fish for three days and three nights, doing what anybody would do inside of a fish, pray. Jonah prays and God responds as chapter 2 verse 10 says, And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And so it is perhaps in this state that Jonah's skin possibly stained from the acidic juices of the fish's belly receives once again the commission from the Lord to go to Nineveh. We read in chapter 3, verse 2, words that parallel God's commission to Jonah from chapter 1, verse 2, as God says to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Then in a contrast to Jonah's initial response of rebellion, verse 3 says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Jonah obeys. Or to put it another way, God has brought Jonah to obedience. Then in verse 4, we see the message that Jonah preaches. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You've probably heard of George Burns' analysis of a good sermon. He said the keys to a good sermon are have a good introduction and a good conclusion and keep those two as close together as possible. We may think that Jonah's sermon fits into the gist of that analysis, you know, something short and simple. But it's possible that Jonah's sermon um, 
And when he went around and preached, it was much longer than the summary given here in verse 4. Hence, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown is a summary of what Jonah preached. A question we need to ask is, what was Jonah getting at in the sermon? Well, by the little snippet we get, it sounds an awful lot like a sermon of God's judgment. Nineveh was, after all, a wicked city, and for their wickedness, it was just that God, through his prophet, pronounced judgment upon them. But we need to ask if Jonah's sermon left a window open for repentance. Uh, Looking at these words, yet 40 days, may indicate that God might be open to showing mercy to Nineveh. The story at this point doesn't reveal the answer, but it would make sense. The theological context of the book of Jonah is one of God's mercy. We've already seen God show mercy to the mariners on the sea. We've seen God show mercy to Jonah with the fish incident. And now in this immediate scene, we see God's mercy extended in another manner. And we'll camp here for just a little bit. Take a look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Here's what we should be impacted by in the first scene. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. The second time. At the beginning of the book, God said to Jonah, go. Jonah said to God, no. God would have been altogether just to snuff out the prophet right there. He could have snapped his fingers and Jonah would be dead. And in all the universe, no one would have been able to lay any successful claim of injustice to God's actions. So why did God spare Jonah's life? I think the answer is simple. Because of those three words, the second time. Richard Phillips writes, Jonah was given a second chance by God, just as God's people often receive second, third, and 77 chances when they repent and call upon the Lord. God is a God of second chances. He wants his people to see that his relentless pursuit of his rebellious children leads to second chances. And this truth is seen throughout the pages of Scripture as we encounter a God who delights to draw near to his spiritually wounded children when they return to him. Moses, you know the story, went and murdered an Egyptian and eventually ran away. Years later, God approached him in a burning bush and called him to lead his people out of slavery. God gave Moses another chance. The Israelites during the period of the judges would sin by worshiping idols. They would come under foreign domination and they would cry out to God and he would deliver them. And this is a cycle over and over again you see in the book of Judges. They, they sin and then they're oppressed and then they repent and God delivers them. We see in those occurrences that God was demonstrating his faithfulness and mercy over and over again. And the well-known New Testament example of God being a God of second chances is found in the life of Peter. You remember the story 
the night of Jesus' trials, Peter promises Jesus he will stand up for him. But Jesus says to him that actually you will deny me three times. And during Jesus' trial, that is exactly what Peter did, deny the Lord three times. But in John 21, post-resurrection of Jesus, Jesus brings Peter to himself and says to him, do you love me? Peter says, yes. All right? Jesus says again, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. And then again, Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. He denied the Lord three times, but he was given another opportunity to affirm him three times. God is a God of second chances. We see this in the pages of Scripture, and brothers and sisters, we must believe this in our own lives. As some application, you know, maybe you haven't pursued the Lord well lately in personal devotion. Maybe you haven't done well in family life, and maybe you haven't done well in just fill in the blank. You may have failed, but God is a merciful God of second chances. You know, we know Romans 3.23, but Lamentations 3.23 is in the good book as well. His mercies are new. How much? Every morning. Every morning. God is a God of second chances, amen? Jonah is the recipient of such mercy from God. So having been re-enlisted into the ministry, Jonah goes and preaches to the Ninevites. Act 2, scene 2, there's mass repentance at the preaching of Jonah. And just to hit the high points here, at the preaching of Jonah, we learn that in verse 5, the people of Nineveh repent. In verse 6, the king of Nineveh repents. In verse 8, the king even wants the animals to repent. As probably some figurative language there with the animals' repentance. But the point is, there's just repentance everywhere. Uh, This is revival crusade before there was revival crusade. Jonah is preaching and masses are repenting. And notice that we also see that there's no delay in their repentance. The message is preached and there's immediacy to their response. Take the king, for example, in verse 6. We read there, the word, that is Jonah's message, reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. The moment he heard the word from God, he arose and responded. You know, Jonah didn't even arise and obey when he heard the word of God the first time. He rebelled. Uh, But here is a king of a wicked city that engages in violence and injustice, and he's repenting at the first hearing of the word of God. I think it's unmistakable that the author of Jonah is setting up a foil here. Namely, we see the king, his repentance highlighting Jonah's rebellion. But there's uh, something else instructive about this passage, teaching us something about the nature of God's judgments. The king issues a decree formally demanding that everyone in the city repent. He has it sent out to the people of his city, and at the end of that decree, the king says this in verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. 
What's the king saying? The king is saying that if we repent, God may remove us out from under his wrath. This is insightful because he understands that God's prophecies of judgment may at times be conditional. Conditional. In the case of the Ninevites, God's prophecy of judgment was conditional. Look at verse 10. When God saw their deeds, that they repented of their wicked behavior, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God withheld his proposed judgment from them as a result of their repentance. You know, sometimes in the Bible, the judgments of God are conditional. In other words, God will remove his judgment if people do such and such. Uh, The Israelites, the original audience of the book of Jonah, would have known good and well about this category of God's judgment. They would have known about the story of their ancestors when God spared them his judgment after they worshipped the golden calf in the wilderness. You remember the story? Moses came down from the mountain saw that the Israelites had made a golden calf and they were worshiping it. God threatened judgment against the Israelites, but Moses interceded on their behalf. And what did God do? Removed his judgment. So the Israelites would have known about this category of God's conditional prophetic judgment. And for an explicit statement of this kind of judgment, God himself said to the prophet Jeremiah, 18, 7 through 8. There are times, Jeremiah, when I threaten to uproot, tear down, and destroy a nation or kingdom. But if that nation I threaten stops doing wrong, I will cancel the destruction I intended to do to it. Sometimes God's judgments are conditional, and that is clearly the case regarding the Ninevites. He said he would judge them, but he reversed it at the sign of their repentance. Now, someone may argue on the basis of this that God changes his mind. Uh, He is a capricious deity, someone may say. You will hear that all day long from devout atheists. But the problem with saying God changes his mind, at least in the same way we change our mind, is that it runs against clear teaching of Scripture. Numbers 23 verse 19 says that God is not a man that he should lie, not a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not make it good? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Psalm 33 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. God's plans do not change. What he plans not only doesn't change, what he plans also is sure to come to pass. That is the God of the Bible. Now another group may come along and say, it's not that God changes his mind, it's that he is open to the future. In other words, God doesn't know the future. Uh, These people are called open theists. Uh, One prominent open theist said, God comes to know events as they take place. So with this perspective, God came to know that Nineveh would repent. That is, God learned something that he didn't already know. 
and he responded by relenting from his judgment. He said he would bring on them. Simply put, this is an unbiblical view of God. God does not find out anything. He's not learning anything as he goes. And in the case of the Ninevites, God did not find out about their repentance. He always knew of their repentance. But he not only knew about their repentance, he ordained it. He chose them from before the foundation of the world that they would repent. See, Romans 9 and Ephesians 1 for evidence that God redeems by his sovereign election. So God's not changing his will or adapting to the action of his creatures. Calvin said it this way, Neither God's plan nor his will is reversed, nor his volition altered. But what he had from eternity foreseen approved and decreed he pursues an uninterrupted tenor however sudden the variation may appear in men's eyes and so from all eternity it was God's intent to pursue his enemies the people of Nineveh and because he pursued them they repented and he relented we can say then that God's relentless pursuit of his enemies results in their repenting and his relenting Now, if we stop there, but we didn't touch on the repentance of the Ninevites, we'd be missing out on something fundamental about biblical repentance. I know repentance is not a popular word in our day, and if it is used, perhaps sometimes it's misunderstood. But let's look at some truths about biblical repentance. We should observe from the Ninevites that True biblical repentance, well, it is accompanied by sorrow for sin. Sorrow for sin. Uh, The Ninevites fasting, wearing sackcloth, and sitting in ashes were all signs of mourning. They were sorry for their sin. Without sorrow for sin, there can be no genuine repentance. The Puritan Watson said, or the Puritan, sorry, Thomas Watson said, A woman may as well expect to have a child without pangs as one can have repentance without sorrow. Sorrow is an indispensable component of biblical repentance. We also learn that biblical repentance is a change in direction. The Ninevites, verse 10 says, they turned from their evil way. Notice that they turned from their evil way. They were living one way, they did an about face and started living in a different manner. It was a change in direction. Biblical repentance is a change in direction. Brothers and sisters, we need to be able to recognize biblical repentance. At one level, we must be able to recognize biblical repentance because without it, people are still lost in their sin. The gospel message itself is a call to repent and believe, Mark 1.15. But if someone has merely given lip service to repentance, yet they have no sorrow for sin and their profession has led to no change in direction, they have not truly repented. They still need to be evangelized. But it's also important to recognize biblical repentance in other ways. You know, biblical repentance is one of the ways we evaluate our own walk with God. You know, is there progress in our lives? both at the level of an internal sorrow for our sins 
and also at the level of our changed actions. Are we walking in repentance, brothers and sisters? It's one way we can test the health of our spiritual condition, biblical repentance. We must be able to recognize this. Nineveh repented, God reversed his judgment, so we see that not only had God shown Jonah tremendous mercy, he also shows Nineveh tremendous mercy. Now, if you're a prophet, okay, think about it, your job is to go preach the message of God. If you're a prophet, you must be jumping for joy right now. God just showed mercy to these pagan enemies of God. They no longer have to go through the horrible wrath of the Almighty. Amazing, let's throw a party. Of course, you know the story, right? That's not Jonah's response. Act 2, scene 3, Jonah pouts like a baby. Listen to how strong the language is here with Jonah's response. The text says in verse 1, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Jonah's response wasn't like, Lord, I'm kind of disappointed. Or, God, I'm kind of struggling with your mercy toward Nineveh. Rather, the repentance of the Ninevites and the relenting of God had such an effect on Jonah that he was boiling over with anger. The Hebrew is literally, it burned to him. God's mercy to the Ninevites burned to Jonah. That's a way to say that Jonah was fiery mad. We're finally, I think, getting a deeper peek into the heart of Jonah. We're now starting to see his motivations for running from the commission of the Lord in the first place. So we're left to ask, what is Jonah's problem? I mean, what really is at the root of his anger? Now, a person may come to this point in the story and think that Jonah's problem is that he doesn't know that God shows mercy to his enemies. Okay, that person may say, let's give Jonah a break. He is information deficient. And perhaps they're right. Maybe Jonah's problem is that he has insufficient data about who God is. However, closer inspection of the text reveals that Jonah's problem doesn't stem from a deficiency in the knowledge of God. His problem is much worse than that. What's going on with Jonah is that he knows God to be a God of mercy. Look at verse 2. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He knows this about God, but here's the rub for Jonah. He thinks God is wrong for showing mercy to the Ninevites. Jonah thinks God is wrong. It's like Jonah sits on the stand and judges God to be unjust in showing mercy to his enemies. Now, someone may dare to rush to Jonah's defense and say something like, but you see, the people of Nineveh were wicked people. As in a Syrian city, they were historically involved in much of the oppression of the Israelites. And so Jonah must be reasoning that if I go and preach repentance to them and they repent, they won't get what they deserve. So let's give them a break. Jonah is just standing on the side of justice. The problem, though, with that reasoning should be obvious. 
the one who holds the right to give the Ninevites what they deserve is not Jonah. It's God. In addition, the one who holds the right to give the Ninevites what they don't deserve is also not Jonah, but God. And God decided to extend mercy to these people. But Jonah charged God with injustice and in showing the Ninevites mercy. I think it's about this time we might be looking for a lightning bolt from heaven, right? We may read or think we might read, and God hurled down a lightning bolt that struck Jonah to death. That's not God's response. Verse 4 reads, And the Lord said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry? In other words, is your anger justified? That's no lightning bolt here. Just a skillful, well-driven nail. Effectively, God is graciously exposing in Jonah's heart his anger really against God. Specifically, God is showing Jonah that he doesn't like it, that God is free to show mercy to whomever he wishes. Jonah's heart then in this case is in rebellion against God, and we can say that rebellious is the child of God who charges God with injustice in his mercy to others. You know, this sounds an awful lot like uh, the older brother of the prodigal son parable in Luke 16, doesn't it? The father was merciful to his runaway son when he returned from his prodigal living. But the older brother, he didn't like that, and he was offended that his father would show mercy to his brother who deserved God's judgment. You know, God wants to root those kind of offenses out of our hearts. What he wants from our hearts is to joyfully submit to who he is, a God who is free to act in mercy as he wishes. He wants us to agree with the words that he gave to Moses that Paul quoted in Romans 9.15. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That is God's right to decide whom he will show mercy to. Amen? Now, where does this intersect with our experiences? Uh, take, for example, those people or persons that you deem to be your enemies. They may be real or they may be perceived. What if God showed them mercy? What if God made them Christians? What if, and, and this would never happen, right? You've made an enemy out of a fellow Christian, and God shows mercy to that Christian. Would you take offense or would you celebrate with joy? The book of Jonah is pushing against our hearts at these very experiences of life and graciously calling us away from taking offense against God's free and sovereign mercy, even to people we may call enemies. God was calling Jonah to this place in his heart, and this is further evidenced by the final section in the book of Jonah. Act 2, scene 4, Jonah gets an object lesson. 
Jonah makes a little hut for himself just outside the city, and he watches. And you may say, why is he watching? Well, he's watching because maybe God will smite the Ninevites after all. Pretty sick, right? And during that time, we see God bring a little comfort into his life and a little discomfort into Jonah's life, and this to teach him a lesson. First, uh, God appoints a plant, verse 6, to give Jonah some relief from the sun. That made Jonah very happy. But then, verse 7, God appointed a worm to attack that plant, and it died. Jonah is now fully exposed to the sun. He's becoming faint, and he says a couple more times that he wants to die. But God doesn't give him what he wants. Instead, God's speaking to Jonah again with a soft hammer. We read in verses 10 through 11. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and much cattle? What is God showing Jonah? On the one hand, he's showing Jonah that his concerns are misplaced. He cares a whole lot about a measly little plant that gives him comfort. But he cares not at all about morally bankrupt people who receive God's mercy. Jonah's filled with pity for the wrong things. On the other hand, take the entire book into consideration. God is showing Jonah that in light of all the mercy God showed him, pursuing him on the sea, ordaining a fish to preserve him in the deadly sea, giving him a second chance, responding graciously to his accusations, providing a plant to shade him. In light of all of that mercy, Jonah doesn't want mercy for his enemies. Jonah remains in rebellion as one about whom it can be said, rebellious is the child of God who has shown compassion but has none for his enemies. As Christians reading the book of Jonah, we must allow its truth to shine into the depths of our hearts and expose any area where we, who have been shown so much mercy in Christ, are unwilling to show mercy to others. And if we allow the book of Jonah to do that, we will sense that we must never forget God's compassions toward us in Christ. Each one of us was born spiritually blind, bound in iniquity, and dead in trespasses and sins. Those are the words the scriptures use to describe us before we came to Christ. Like David testified about, we were conceived in iniquity and born in sin. And life has proven to us, hasn't it, that each one of us, we have all acted out of that sinfulness. Like Paul said, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because of our sins, we are at enmity with God. And like every other unbeliever, we were on a one-way track to hell. But Romans 5.10 says, and I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. Romans 5.10 says, if while we were enemies, enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Brothers and sisters, we were once enemies of God, but now we are friends of God. And this is on the basis, this friendship that we have is on the basis 
of the cross of Jesus Christ, the very mercy seat, the place where God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so if God has been so incredibly gracious to us, shown us so much mercy in his son, should we not want to see the same mercy extended to others? That's where you say, yes. Yes. Amen. Jesus said he was forgiven little. What? Loves little. But I think he was no doubt affirming the opposite with that statement, that he was forgiven much, loves much. To the degree that we are aware of God's mercy to us is the degree to which we will show mercy to others. This is why we must daily rehearse to ourselves the gospel of God's mercy. Amen? Now let me offer one final exhortation from the book of Jonah. As Christians, we need to recognize that the book of Jonah ultimately points to Jesus. After all, Jesus himself read the book in connection with himself. He saw the time frame between his death and resurrection foreshadowed by Jonah's experience in the great fish. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah's experience in the fish therefore looked beyond itself to Jesus' experience in the heart of the earth. Furthermore, Jesus saw his preaching of the gospel as typified by Jonah's preaching. In that same chapter in Matthew, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said to the Israelites, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The repentance of the men of Nineveh will be a testimony against those who rejected the gospel in Jesus' day. And did you notice also, Jesus said that something greater than Jonah is here. Simply put, Jesus was saying he's a greater Jonah. What does that mean? It means that the saving message that Jesus came to bring to all of the nations of the world is greater than the saving message that Jonah went to take to a small group of Gentiles, the Ninevites. And as evidence that the one who is greater than Jonah is still at work today, if you're a saved Gentile, you are a testimony to the greatness of the message of Jesus. We are a testimony to the gospel that has saved us and called us into the mission of the greater Jonah. Matthew 28, you know it, the great commission. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. That's our commission. The king with all the authority in heaven and on earth. He has shown us great mercy, hasn't he? Let's go make disciples of God's mercy. Amen? Let's pray.